I'm willing to bet that for most of you, idolatry is not at the top of the chart of your contemporary vices, concerns, frustrations uh, of the battles that you're having on a regular basis. But given how much attention is paid in the Torah to the issue of idolatry, the prohibition of idolatry, the battles and challenges of idolatry, and as it uh, almost tops the chart uh, toward the beginning of the Ten Commandments, the Aseris Hadibros of this week's Parsha of Yisro, and given how often I'm asked about just how are we to understand why the Torah makes such a big deal about idolatry, I mean, who would do it anyway? So I'd like to uh, spend a few minutes today addressing the topic, and actually, as is always our goal, try to hopefully even hit some real um, tactless takeaways, some real practical outcomes, uh, some take-homes that we can walk away with from this rather seemingly foreign topic. So number one, the distance that we have from idolatry, the fact that it is so foreign to us, is actually a gift. A gift that was provided by the men of the Great Assembly, the Anshek Nessus Hagdola, the High Court of Israel at the time of the Second Temple period, the very beginning of the Second Temple period, recognizing the incredible damage that idolatry had brought to the First Temple era, the Anshikinesh Zagdola, the men of this great assembly, begged God that he eliminate the Yitzhahara, that he remove the drive for Avodah for idolatry. And they were successful. And God did. God eliminated that aspect of the Yitzhahara, and there is no longer an intense, passionate drive to serve idols. Now, that doesn't mean idolatry disappeared. It hasn't yet disappeared fully. But from that time and on, idolatry basically was no longer something for which the human being had an intense drive, but rather was something that lived on as part of a culture, as part of a heritage, as part of a family practice or of a national practice. And if you even do a little analysis where we are historically, this is within the beginnings of the, uh, the Greek dominance of much of the world, and the Greeks can start making a mockery of their own gods, and it doesn't take many, many centuries until Greece, Rome, parts of uh, that central part of the world start adopting variations on monotheism. Okay, true, in the forms of uh, Christianity and the many subsets of that. And within a few centuries after that, Islam can start uh, having its impact on the world and grow in rapid numbers because there's no longer an incredible, intense, internal, passionate drive for paganism, idolatry. Now, that said, we still have this hard time. Well, how could anybody ever have valued the the stones and the mountaintops and the totem poles and the tortoises and the various other things that have been worshipped. So let's get a little perspective. To share an idea that uh, Rav Mordechai Neugeshal uh, explains, imagine the following scene. Imagine we'll have the star of our uh, following scene named Plony. That's the classic uh, Talmudic John Doe. So Plony is viewing... At the end of his life, 120 years, a very full, life full of blessing on this world, he's now in the theater observing his life being reviewed in front of him. And this is your life, Plony. And as he watches, 
he is pulled back to a very lavish banquet that he attended. And that lavish banquet, uh, he's turning to the fellow next to him and commenting, That's, this is every type of food you could imagine. This was incredible. Totally stuffed. That's it. Not eating any, anything later tonight. I don't think I'm eating anything the rest of this week. I am stuffed. Well, then the music starts, and they start wheeling out a beautiful Viennese table, followed by another, and another, and another, each table with its own theme. Of all of the fine delicacies of the incredible desserts from around the world, and Plony now in the audience, watching Plony at the banquet in the film, can't imagine why. Plony in the audience no longer has taste buds, is no longer enticed by the fragrances or by the beautiful array of colors. Plony in the audience is measuring things based on seichel, based on intellect, as a soul divorced from its physical body. But Plony in the film, Plony at the time that he was at the banquet, is a different Plony. And that Plony pops out of his seat to go run over to the Viennese table, despite the comment he just made to his buddy at the table, no more food for a week. Well, Plony is out there with everybody else, loading up his plate, and bringing it back to the table as Plony in the audience is shocked. There, there is nothing of nutritional content on that plate. And there's no room for it in Plony's belly. What's the use of ingesting that into the body? Yet, despite the shock of Plony in the audience... Plony in the film is eating it, and after finishing that plate, has joined the crowd once again at another table, loading it up. What's this conflict going on between Plony in the audience and Plony in the film? Well, that's the detachment between a world in which there is the Yetzirah, a world in which there is that lust, that desire, that drive, that passion for whatever it is, in this case the food on that Viennese table, and a Plony in the audience who is in a world without that lust and desire. And that's us looking at a world of Avodazara, the world of idolatry, before the elimination of the Yetzirah, before God removed that temptation. When we watch it, now thinking simply logically, we can't relate to what it is that was driving them because we don't have that drive. Now, it doesn't in any way make them right, just like the Plony in the film is not necessarily smart for running up to the table and filling his plate so many times, but at least helps us gain some perspective as to why it is that we can't relate to their behavior. And maybe, uh, instead of our looking quizzically at them, maybe it requires us to have a little bit of a uh, quizzical look internally at ourselves and instead of uh, judging them, maybe requires a little bit of an internal judgment as to are there sometimes some behaviors, some things that we're doing where at the time I internally recognize that I'm giving in, that I know I shouldn't. I know it's not smart. I know it's not intelligent. I know it's not healthy. I know it's not right. But it feels so good. It tastes so good. It's socially so acceptable. Are we allowing ourselves a little bit of a uh, wrongful luxury of silencing the inner voice of reason and intellect and willpower and control 
to yield to a Yetzirah that ultimately we're going to look back at that film and not get, and uh, in all different realms. And if so, can we maybe jump out of the uh, actual mode into the audience mode for the moment within our lives and say, hey, I don't want to be observing that and questioning myself later on, especially knowing that I won't be the only observer. Because when we do observe that this is your life, that's together with everybody else about whom we've been talking and in front of whom we've been pretending to be in such control and uh, to whom we've made the promises about, yes, I'll be more careful about this in the future. They're going to join us in that audience. So can we maybe, as our tackless point number one for today, as our, our actual take-home, recalling from this concept of the idolatry and the, again, in our view, inane behavior, because without the Sahara, that's what it is. Without the passion, it does not make sense. So can we hold ourselves under a little bit of a spotlight of, okay, I want to keep myself in that audience looking at my life and judge myself based on intellect and seichel and logic and accuracy and what does Hashem in the Torah preach for me in this circumstance and use that to gauge the behavior that we're about to engage in. So that would be our tackless point number one. I'd like to pull in one more uh, from this very foreign world of idolatry of Avodah one more real take-home practical lesson. And that will be based on a Rashi in this coming week's Parsha of Yisro, of Yisro a uh, point in the Rashi that I owe great debt of gratitude to Rabbi Yochanan Zweig, Rosh Hashiva, Miami Beach. Uh, years back, I was stuck having to spend several weeks in Florida in midwinter, uh, weeks of January and February down in Miami Beach, of all places. And uh, Rav Yochanan Zweig on this part of Yisro shared a fascinating insight into human nature tied to this Rashi. Rashi is addressing the fact that when God commands us to steer away from idolatry, he tells us to avoid Elohim Acherim. Various other approaches aside for right now, Rashi, in his second commentary on this expression, Elohim Acherim, other gods, Rashi explains that the other of other gods is gods who make themselves other to you. Gods who do not respond to your cries. Tzoakim Elohim, you call out to them, and yet they do not respond. Question, Rabbi Zweig, to whom is God talking? Hashem commands, don't turn to those other gods, those gods who don't respond to you. Well, to the one who doesn't believe in any of these pagan elements, okay, without your commandment, I'm not going to waste my time turning to this totem pole. But to the one who is bought into it, to the one who is accepting of and turning to the idols, doesn't he expect that the idol is heeding his prayer? What's the use of saying, don't turn to that God who isn't listening to you? I'll suggest Rizwaig that in fact, there is an element of the human psyche. There's part of us that is somewhat hopeful that maybe, just maybe, the power to whom I turn is not paying attention to me. One of the tools used by the Eitzahara of the evil inclination, the uh, system by which he manages to pull us away from the one true God towards paganism, is by playing on this aspect of our psyche that 
feels more comfortable with the possibility that our prayers are actually not heard. For if, in fact, the deity to whom we turn is paying attention to all that we ask of him, how do we defend the fact that we aren't paying attention to all that he asks from us? If the deity is in fact concerned about us and paying attention to us and focused on us, how do we live with the fact that we are not similarly attentive to, focused on, and loyal to him? So there is that part of us that would rather our prayers not be heard, and the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, plays on that and redirects mankind to the world of paganism. And now if even, thankfully, as we've talked about before, we are no longer subject to an intense internal desire for uh, to run and bow to a, uh, to, a, to a volcano or to a star or to the moon. But what about the reality that we do have this internal quest for the calm that comes with the possibility that I know allegiance to anybody I'm not being listened to. Think about it for a moment in the interpersonal realm, and as Ray Zweig pointed out, how often people stop short of taking the step to make a permanent, lasting relationship because, hey, if I let this get any closer and, and she starts caring more about me, I'm going to have to reciprocate. Or if I, I let him become that much more devoted to me, what's that going to demand of me in return? And then playing this back to our relationship with God, what a shame if we allow this internal uh, sense of, oh, I'd rather he not be paying attention to me. I would rather be kind of off the hook because I don't have that responsibility. What a shame if we let that dictate our relationship or lack thereof with God. So let's make our tackless point number two for the day. B, not allowing that to happen, maintaining a recognition of the fact that God is in tune to me, appreciating the fact that God is in tune to me, and maybe a simple way to do that, simple may be the wrong way, but a practical way to do that would be using the word atah. We constantly talk to God Baruch atah, blessed art thou, if you speak ancient English. Blessed are you, Baruch atah. Whenever we come across that atah, allow ourselves to really treat it as atah. I'm talking to you. I know you are attentive to me, and you're on the other side of this dialogue. And put a sticky note next to your atah and your sitter, underline it, highlight it, do something to occasionally allow yourselves to draw attention to that. That one simple word, with a little more attention can really change much of our relationship with God. So, pulling together our two tackless points for the day, our two practical takeaways. Uh, number one, the ludicrous behavior of those idolaters. Well, we said ludicrous because we don't have the taste, we don't have the temptation. So, just as we looking at them, when we look at our own behaviors, let's jump into the audience looking at our behaviors. Let's look at the various acts that we do for which we may have a little too much of a taste, or temptation, or desire, and our motivations may be less seichel, less intellect, and a little bit more coming from a place of those current, very, very human taste buds. So let's pull ourselves back to the audience and look at that from the perspective of seichel, of intellect, how, and, and think, how do we evaluate the current behavior, what I'm about to be doing, 
from a place of intellect back in the audience? And how would others who are in that shared, purely intellectual audience evaluate my behavior? And let's try to use that imagery to help ourselves kind of cheer ourselves on from the audience to make the right moves and kind of boo ourselves away from doing those wrong moves and try to orient ourselves in the right direction. And Tal step number two, using that atta, that recognition that we can talk to God, and combining these two elements, hopefully making the right decisions, being the type of people that when we are turning to God, He is eager to be bestowing His blessing upon us because of our behavior over here. Using these both can hopefully boost us in our behavior, in our attitudes, in our relationship with God, and help us reach our tachlis.